it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Michael Corita. He is the New York Times bestselling author of 17 novels and has won several awards for his work. He is a former private investigator and newspaper reporter. His latest novel, An Honest Man, is available now from Mulholland Books. Michael, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Appreciate it. Oh, no problem at all. Now, why don't you tell us a little bit about An Honest Man? Yeah, so An Honest Man is a crime novel, thriller, I don't know what the the proper label is, uh, set on an island off the coast of Maine, a fictional island, but it's inspired by a real place called Vinyl Haven. And it opens with a lobsterman named Israel Pike, who has come back to this island home that's been a multi-generational home uh, for his family. And he's been in prison for 15 years for killing his own father. And when he returns to the island, um, he's, there, you know, there's some community uh, resistance to Israel. People think they, they sort of understand him in a way that most of them probably do not. And he hasn't been back too long before on you know, the events that I guess would be page one of the book. He, he spots this luxury yacht that's adrift off the coast and he can tell something's wrong. It's not moving under its own power. And so he goes out in his little skiff, see what's wrong and he boards the yacht and he finds uh, a pretty horrific murder scene um, on board. And it turns out two of the, two of the dead are rivals for the last Senate seat that could really like swing the balance of power at a national level. And I really, I enjoyed that idea of playing with an extremely contained, isolated, you know, claustrophobic environment on this island community, but then bumping the big world of, you know, wealth and power and um, an entirely different set of of goals and understandings, I think, up against my island and, and seeing what happened. Right, the role that it plays in its own way in a, in a broader conflict. Exactly. Yeah, I wanted. I'm a big fan of books where the setting is an active character. You know, books where the place is more than texture. It's not just atmosphere, but it pushes back on the characters. It it changes things. Um, and I mean, Maine is such, I don't know if you spent any time up here, but it's a beautiful mm-hmm. place, of course. And everyone has, I think immediately you talk about islands off the coast of Maine and people have a pretty idyllic, bucolic vision of it. But then the reality is very different. You know, you've got, not only can the weather and the elements change on a dime and become something harsh and threatening, Sure. But you also have communities where, you know, right. So I'm in Camden right now. Camden is uh, not an island. It's a coastal town, but right. we're on Penobscot Bay and 
I drive past on a daily basis, you know, these signs that say, it's like, you know, South Thomaston established in 1614 or whatever the year is. I know it's early 1600s. And coming from the Midwest, I always found that really just sort of fascinating. Think about how much history this place has, um, and yet it still feels very remote. Right. Right. It feels rustic and it feels secluded, but uh, and they, it may have been throughout its, these towns may have been throughout their entire founding, but there is still in the modern world now. And um, it's interesting that you find a way to bring such locations into the modern world in, your, in the setting of your story. Yeah, I wanted, I liked the idea of the question that fascinated me with this book was how much have we really changed in terms of our views on justice and accusations you know we it was written in this moment when the ideas of um oh i guess what i would call like the online sort of mob response was getting right. a lot of media attention and i'm setting this story in a world where i mean people it's modern day people have cell phones but it's almost inconsequential out there because it's such a dead zone, you know? So Wi-Fi Mm -hmm. cell phones exist, but we're not as tethered to them in, in this community. And it gave me a way to sort of look at that, you know, hundreds of year old version of how do people respond to an accusation or an allegation and is it really is it really that different from today? What what does the speed of information do? How does it matter? Right, right. Yeah, it's funny that uh, when when you look at history, you find that there there has always been a grapevine. There's always been um, gossip mongers, no matter whether it was in Roman times in old England or uh, in uh, or New England. Or even in the old West, people found a way to get bad news pretty quickly. Exactly. And sometimes the bad news would be false news. But then, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I love about uh, crime novels is exploring that sort of social question of how hard it is for the people who administer justice, whether that is in a formal sense, you know, the, the law enforcement, judge, jury, prosecutor sense, or if, mm-hmm. in, if it means more of the informal, you know, neighborhood enforcer, whoever it is, how difficult it is for them to admit that they got it wrong. And what is the price of insisting that you are right, you know, that, you, that your version of justice is righteous. I love those novels. I think of guys who influenced me very early, uh, Dennis Lehane was kind of up there at the top of the list. And I loved what he did with this sort of question and Gone Baby Gone and Darkness Take My Hand in particular. Um, Obviously Mystic River, but for me, it was those Patrick Kenzie and Angela Gennaro novels really set the tone early. Right. Yeah. He touched a lot of authors and um, his name always comes up when you talk about writers who have influenced writers of today. I mean, he's very much a contemporary, but he, um, his reach has been profound, hasn't it? Oh, I think it's absolutely extraordinary. And I know he's working 
um, you know, primarily, I would say, for screen at this point, he's got shows he's developing or will return to developing when the strike finally ends. But it was great to see him come back with another novel this year, Small Mercies coming out. And again, mm -hmm. Small Mercies lives in that that zone of um, do we want to trust the system? Do we want to go outside of the system? How do we right a wrong? And who is really, who should really be trusted here? Right, right, exactly. And it also sounds like you start with a very isolated island community in the 21st century. And then I like how you have the inciting action being the murder found on a much more isolated place, which is a yacht at sea and in a cabin room too. So that's, that's fascinating to me that you were able to, to take it from a small environment to an even more compact environment and then have it blow up to involve something of national importance. I love that you noticed that because from a technical standpoint, one of my goals early on was how claustrophobic can I make this thing feel? You know, right. the, the story structure needed to have the sense of walls closing in on Israel Pike and our other characters. There's a, a kid I loved writing named Lyman Rankin, who's on, he lives with an abusive alcoholic father on this island. But for Israel, particularly in those opening pages, I wanted to have this guy who rotated out of prison, which mm -hmm. when you think, you know, most of us have the emotional response to a prison cell, we think that has to be the most claustrophobic, confined experience you would ever know. And right. he's back in the free world, and yet I wanted it to feel as if he's getting squeezed more in the free world than he ever was in prison. Um, and so you're the only person I've spoken to yet who actually has paid attention to the progression there of, you know, we go from the island, which is small, and we shrink it down, and then the boat is smaller, but I'm shrinking that down even more because he has to, he has to go, you know, cross that threshold. And the, right. the doors are closing behind him, liter literally and figuratively, right out of the gate. So I love that you noticed that. Thank you. Oh, God, no, no, it's, it's great. And it's a great device, too, because I, and I'm, I'm aware of it because I've done the same thing with one of my uh, Western characters who is a broken man throughout the series. But uh, it's because he was imprisoned early. He was set up to kill someone that benefited someone he thought was a friend. And he, that was before the books start. But he's still haunted by that. And people have said, you know, he doesn't seem to be always right there in the books. There's always something a little off about him. And I said, yes, that's because he was in prison and he's still in many ways in a prison, even though now he's a federal lawman in the old West. So it's, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that kind of effort when, when an author takes that to introduce uh, that kind of device into a, a story. It, it, people don't see that framework usually when they're reading a book. But it's 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 important no. for it to be there. It's that's perfectly said. If you've done your job well, I think they they don't see it or think about it consciously, but they absolutely feel it. You know, mm -hmm. that's the, the job number one is it's creating the the emotional investment, and if if you do it well then the structure and the technical aspect, the devices 
will never be obvious unless someone really wants to pause and consider them. I love that you mentioned Westings, by the way, because a lot of people in um, my genre don't really talk about that. And I, mm -hmm. I would say probably 75% of what I've written, ultimately, to me, structurally, they are Westerns. Right. Um, I'm very, very motivated um, and influenced by that kind of structure. So An Honest Man is a perfect example. I mean, you could you could take this story, move it to, you know, the 1880s, you know, mm -hmm. out in the the dusty plains and everyone would say oh okay we get it it's a western but you make it contemporary and put it in maine and they might not see that but it is it's the exact same approach right exactly right and it's just like with uh to, to change media here uh john carpenter when he did escape from new york they asked him to describe it he says it's basically a western set in the future and uh absolutely, when you look at yeah. it that way it's absolutely right you can just see that's what he meant and meant to do, and he did it well. Yeah, I mean, so what I'm thinking about with this book is the the question basically can be distilled down. Obviously, what I'm trying to do is Salvation Point, my island community is, you know, I want it to be a microcosm of, frankly, the United States in this moment, which sounds really grandiose, but, you know, it's like one of those personal goals. It's not on the page. I'm trying not to hit it with a sledgehammer on an anvil. Right, but the what it boils down to is, who's going to run this island? You know, is it the is it the corrupt force in town, or is it the guy who has come back to the town who everyone thinks is corrupt, but he you know he's really the the one who, uh, from a moral standpoint, he's he's the one that they need to sort of save the community from itself, um, right. which is about as classic a Western motif as you could possibly get. Exactly right. Exactly right. It sounds like you've got a lot of really interesting characters in An Honest Man. I'm wondering, do you envision yourself returning to this community with either the same protagonist or maybe another protagonist in a future book? Because I, uh, you know, from what I saw, you, you have a really interesting uh, town that you founded there. So my immediate answer without any hesitation at all is no, I will never go back to that island, which probably <laughs> means that I will at some point. Exactly <laughs> so, right. So one thing I've learned over time is whenever I think it's a standalone, I drift back to it. And when mm -hmm. I you know, think I'll be with this character for a long time, I end up being pulled in another direction. So you know, it's, it's the writer's version of uh, man plans, God laughs. I, right. I have given up on thinking that I know what I'll be working on two years or three years down the line. I just, you know, I hope I'm lucky enough to still be working. That's, that's about as far <laughs> as I push it. Amen, brother. Amen. I, I feel you. Um, <laughs> I definitely understand that. Um, in, in terms of what's next for you, uh, what are you working on uh, now that this one has, has come to life? So what, I, what I'm working on right now is actually, um, it's a ghost story, and I write those under a pseudonym now. Uh, the name is Scott Carson, okay. and those are with, with Simon and Schuster, Atria, uh, and this will be the third one under that name. I've always so this is more, you know, Stephen King country. He was another 
big influence to me. Uh, Peter Straub, you know, Ghost oh, Story yeah. um, is one of my all-time favorites. But there is a book that I have put probably in more readers' hands than almost anything else. It, it's probably a tie between Daniel Woodrell's Winter's Bone and Robert McCammon's Boy's Life. And oh. Boy's Life, I don't know if, if you've ever read it, is just this great, it has some supernatural elements, but it really, it's a coming of age story at its, at its core. And I loved that book. Right. I just, he's having so much fun on the page. You can, you can kind of feel the, the joy he's taking in uh, nostalgia. So this, the new one is called Lost Man's Lane. And it's, it is a ghost story, but it has more to do with the coming of age moment. The protagonist is, 16, 17 years old in a small town in Indiana, uh, college town, you know, which is where I grew up. And mm -hmm. just that, that sort of moment of, you know, 1999, um, you know, turning the page of the millennium there. I really enjoyed going, yep. going back to that. And it's a much more, it's funny to say this about, you know, a ghost story, which um, in theory would be, you know, a horror novel, but it is, much much more lighthearted in many mm -hmm. ways than an honest man you know an honest man is a pretty grim worldview um to an extent sure well it's it, and it, that fits the, the the genre that you were uh, that you've written in because you know crime novels very rarely focus on the uh better angels of our nature and they usually don't have a sunny disposition absolutely yes exactly so it's, it's funny that Go ahead. I was just gonna say it felt nice to sort of take take a break and or a breath and go back to the world of you know I'm gonna tell a ghost story just to me inherently there's a, a different level of um, oh of fun to it you know mm -hmm. there's like a natural levity to the process of telling a ghost story even while I'm trying to scare the hell out of you the act right. of the campfire story is it feels a little different. I would imagine it does, yeah. And I also imagine that you find it to be a creative palate cleanser, something I've talked about on this podcast quite often with other uh, authors, that it's important not to just keep writing if you can, and, and the news takes you there. It's important not to keep writing in just one genre for, for a lot of us. It helps to spread it around a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's how you're going to get to your your best stuff. It's, you know, you don't want to repeat yourself and that you you can always find i don't care if you're writing with the same character for 30 books you can mm -hmm. find a challenge and something on on sort of the technical or the stylistic side that you haven't done before and ideally in my opinion i'm curious if you agree with this it's something that scares you too mm -hmm. yeah there's always a good you're not sure if you can pull it off Right, a little amount of fear at the beginning of a project, whether it's a genre you've written in or you haven't tackled yet, is always a healthy thing. It usually is a good sign that you're onto something good. Agreed, absolutely. It is, and it's funny, because while you were talking and, and you mentioned that you were going to do um, a horror novel under another name, what something that struck me when you were talking earlier about the, the community and possibly returning to it and I had to look him up to make sure I had the name right, is John Saul, another writer who um, has said, um, he tells a different story about 
different characters, but in the same town. And they're they're kind of related. Town, right? But they're but it's funny how he's able to um, tell the, the a, a bigger version of what he's uh, of what's going on in that town. But all the horrors are somewhat related. And before you even told me about the uh, horror story that you're working on, that kind of comparison just jumped in my mind. So uh, who knows? You might be onto something. It it might turn out that yeah. Way. I mean, you think about what what King did with the. Dairy novels and the Castle Rock novels—they yeah. aren't sequels, but they're uh, they're in a shared universe that is that community, um, right. and that always appeals to me. You know, that's mm-hmm. a lot of fun because you can bring in a new cast, but there is something special to the writer and the reader of feeling like, oh, I know this place, and even if even if it's a if it's a very tangential, minor. Uh, storyline or touchstone there's there's something very nice about the familiarity of being a character again right exactly right it's yeah I I try to do the same things all the books that have my name on the cover uh in any genre all have one family uh that is in the background of everything and uh the Van Dorns and they're not the prime movers of, of action in most of the books but people who read everything, it's like an Easter egg for them. And they'll say, oh, yeah, that's the guy who was a young guy in the 1880s. Now he's an old man in the 1930s. I get it. Yes, I love that. Uh, James Lee Burke does that with the Holland family so well. Where yes. sometimes they're playing the lead. And then at other moments, it might belong to someone else. But there's still there, there's some, you know, you, you almost want to break down the family tree and say, right. OK, you know, which, which one is this? Um, and that allows him to range across time and place, but still with that connective tissue that feels very special to the reader, which is clearly what you're doing too. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really uh, it's great when it's kind of like a reward, if you will, for all of the uh, readers who've been with us on this journey. Yeah, I think I I know as a reader, I love the Easter eggs. Um, right. And it also is. It's a fun way to almost dip your cap at a book that you enjoyed and that treated you well, but it does not necessitate an, a direct sequel. You know, to me, it's, right. it's almost a, a way of saying thank you <laughs> to those characters. Right. Right. Yeah. You could pay homage to them without uh, overdoing it. Um, so you've got a lot going on coming up in the future. Uh, what is the best way that people can follow your progress online, your website, places like that? Yeah, I think um, through no uh, credit of my own, I should be available about anywhere that social media exists, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks to the work of Aaron Mitchell. So either my name, Michael Carita, K-O-R-Y-T-A, or mm-hmm. Scott Carson, uh, you know, a Google search or whatever will lead you to my website, my Facebook page, things of that nature. The only thing uh, I've I've stridently managed to avoid so far is is TikTok. You won't see me dancing on TikTok just yet. (laughs) And you should be very grateful. I know. Yeah. But don't put any ideas in Erin's head because she's great, but she'll she'll probably have you start a TikTok account and have you doing something on on, on, uh, video. But uh, anyway, well, that that's uh, yeah, no, Erin's great. She does she does a great job for all of her clients. 
So absolutely, anyway, she, yeah, she's the best. She is. Well, everybody, thank you very much for joining us for another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time, everybody. Take care. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.